And so let's, uh, let's continue to do that. I want to uh, share some time in God's Word. And uh, the sun's already on my neck, so I might preach really, really short. But I'm going to try my best to give you something that is important and valuable. We've been going through this series, The Names of God. Hello, my name is. And today we're talking about uh, a little bit of a... We're switching gears a little bit. It's a little bit Old Testament, but it's also a little bit New Testament. We're talking about... First, let me... Before I tell you the name, before I spill the beans, I want to ask you a question. So we got some wind. I don't know if it's going through these mics or not. But... I want to ask you this question. Does anybody know Jesus' last name? Yeah, a lot of people think it's Christ, right? A lot of people. What? Yeah. <laughs> Jesus Howard from Nazareth. That's right. But here's the thing. A lot of times there are people, especially if you don't have a lot of church experience, a lot of people would say, oh, Jesus Christ. Christ is his last name. But Christ is a title. And today we're going to be talking about that title. The Hebrew version of that title is Messiah. It's also used in the New Testament as well. But it's also the Greek version, the more New Testament version, I should say, is Christ. And so we talk about Jesus. We hear the name Jesus Christ. And it's a name that unfortunately gets misused. People don't understand it. They think it's his last name. Sometimes it's just a curse word to people. It's, it's far too common for people that don't believe anything about Jesus. And even us believers sometimes will mess up and we'll use his name, Jesus Christ, as a curse word. But the Christ, the Messiah, is something that the Jewish people, the people of God, had been waiting for for thousands of years. They were waiting for Jesus to come, but they didn't know that Jesus was him. You know what I'm saying? They didn't know the man Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, that they'd been waiting for. And this word Messiah or Christ means anointed one. And when you hear that phrase or when you see that phrase, many times in the Old Testament, it was the idea of priests and kings would be anointed. You know, the, the Jewish people especially had different ceremonies from a lot of the other kings and God wanted them to be different. So one of the things they did was they anointed their kings with oil. And sometimes in those ceremonies when they were anointing or setting apart a new king, they would take that oil and they would put it in the shape of a crown on the head of that king, saying, this is the one that God is appointing. This is the one that God is using. And so we think about this, this anointed one of God. Somebody's calling me. Is that one of y'all? No, it's not. Turn your tongues on. <laughs> but you've got this anointed one, this Christ, the Messiah. And many times it would be a king. And the beautiful thing about this is that Jesus is and was a king, right? That's right. He was and is a priest. He was and is a prophet. But they would anoint kings and prophets. They would set them apart. And they were saying, this is God's chosen one to lead our nation. But the Messiah, the Christ, this was something even far and beyond. This was the king of all kings. That's right. He was the king of all kings that they were waiting to come. Now, many misunderstood him. And we're going to talk about that for a second here in just a moment. But many misunderstood who this king was going to look like. They thought he was going to be a military leader who was going to come in and kick butt and take names and get rid of the Romans, overthrow them, and give them power. Especially when Jesus came on the scene. They were so ready for revolt. They were so ready to be in charge instead of being lorded over by these Romans that they could not stand. But here's something I want to tell you. Jesus is referred to as the Messiah or the Christ in the New Testament 530 times. 530 times he's referred to as the Messiah or the Christ. 
And his anointing was a little bit different. We don't see in Scripture. We do see him being uh, you know, anointed a couple different times. But I believe his anointing took place in a different way. You know, many times that oil was to represent the Holy Spirit. And when Jesus was baptized, we see him beginning his ministry. And we see the dove come down. And we hear God say, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. I believe that maybe is his anointing time when he begins his ministry. And he is fully and ready to be the Messiah and begin leading our hearts back to him. And we see these prophecies in the Old Testament talking about the Messiah, talking about this Christ that was to come. And I'm not going to spend all your uh, morning here talking about every single one of these. But I want to point out a few. And so if you got a Bible, you can follow along. Or you can just take notes and go back and check them. But I'm going to give you some overview here. Genesis chapter 3. I, I preached about this one not too awful long ago, but it's so important to remember. Early in the story of Scripture, we see Adam and Eve and they sin, right? And God comes down and he, he makes amends and he says, look, and he approaches the deceiver, Satan. And he says, look, here's the, what's going to happen. And he tells Adam and Eve some of the problems that have come about because of their sin. And he tells the deceiver, he tells Satan, he says, her offspring, and, and Satan misunderstands. He thinks it's literally, literally the child of Eve. But he's just saying one of the descendants of Eve is going to come and he will crush your head, but you will strike his heel. And, of course, you know, we wouldn't have got it, but, and Satan certainly didn't understand the depth of what he was saying. And so he goes and automatically attacks Cain and Abel, right? Starts working on them. And he has some success there, but he doesn't thwart the plan of God, right? He doesn't thwart the plan of God. But one of the things I want to point out is something really important. When Jesus was on the cross, it looked like Satan had won, Right? I mean, you know, you can almost imagine Satan, he's dancing, right? He's celebrating. You, you can almost imagine when Jesus goes in the grave. Y'all didn't like my dancing. Anybody Nobody go. So, so I got to get some back cream rubbed on me now. Yeah. Um, but Satan thought that he had won. He was celebrating. He just knew that Jesus was defeated once and for all. And that was the strike on his heel. I don't want to strike on a heel, but you know what? It's not as bad as a head crushing. And that's absolutely what Jesus gave to Satan and to death when he rose up from the grave. Amen? Amen. He gave Satan the head crushing. He destroyed death once and for all. And this was one of the first prophecies of the Messiah. Fast forward a few chapters. And I spoke about this. And we're going to hear about it again uh, in the next couple of weeks. Genesis 22. We see the story of Abraham and Isaac. And there's so many things. I encourage you to go through. And you'll be prepared for next Sunday's message actually talking about uh, this story where you see Abraham and Isaac and how Jesus is all intertwined in that story. I love that example of scripture there. But we see Jesus being the one who was provided as a sacrifice to take away sins. You know, just like Isaac, we deserve to die. He didn't deserve to die, but we deserve to die for our sins. But just like he did in that, did in that story, God provided a sacrifice right there. And ultimately that sacrifice is Jesus. And so there's a prophecy of Jesus. There's an image of Jesus coming soon. In Psalm 22, we see many times the Messiah prophesied in Psalms. But in Psalm 22, there's a few verses I want us to read really quickly. The first one is this. See if you recognize this in terms of Jesus. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When did Jesus fulfill that? On the cross, the Messiah. Now, okay, let's pause for a second. Some people would try to say that Jesus was trying to fulfill these prophecies as best he could so that people would think he was the Messiah. There are some people who believe that. And you could say, okay, well, he could read the scripture, he could understand that that's prophesied about the Messiah, and he could say that on the cross. I'll give you that, okay? Let's look at verse 8. 
recognize this. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Did you hear that also when Jesus was on the cross? Now, Jesus couldn't necessarily make other people say some things about him, could they? No, they said that willingly about him. They helped fulfill that prophecy about Jesus. But listen to this one in verse 18 of Psalm 22. It says, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. You recognize that one from the crucifixion? The soldiers did just that, didn't they? They took his garments, they took his stuff, and they cast lots. They gambled to see who would get what of Jesus's. Now, here's the one that, it may seem small and insignificant, but I want to draw that to your mind for a second. Could Jesus, while he's on the cross, have any power over these Roman soldiers put in their brain for them to gamble over his clothing? No. And so Jesus is the Messiah. That's just one of the many ways. But then I want to read to you, and this is going to take a second. I want you to focus really quickly. Isaiah 53, beginning in verse 12. Uh, excuse me, beginning in verse 2. Isaiah 53, verse 2. He grew up before him like a tender shoot. Listen for Jesus. And like a root out of dry ground, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one whom from people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low, self low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced. Now listen to this. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. That's Jesus. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. That's Jesus all over it. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him, and it caused him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, I will see, he will see the light of life and be satisfied by his knowledge. Excuse me, by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong. Because he has poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Now that was a mouthful right there. But man, that is Jesus all inside out and all around. And that's one of the passages of scripture that the Jews had the hardest problem with when Jesus came on the scene. Because they did not want to believe that their Messiah was going to suffer. They wanted him to be triumphant. They just didn't understand they had to wait for the triumph. And I want to pause right there for just a second and remind you that right now you may be in the midst of suffering. You know, all of us have a common suffering that's going on with all the things going on in our world. But some of you are carrying extra burdens that I know nothing about. And you can understand that in all the different ways that that applies. 
and you may feel like God is not here and God is not listening and God doesn't care, but I want you to know beyond the shadow of a doubt that just like Friday came and it seemed like all was lost, Sunday came Come on. and Jesus was alive and That's is right. alive. And there is hope even in the grave. There's hope in the grave and there's life with Jesus. He was crushed for our iniquities. It should have been my sin. It should have been me on the cross. But Jesus died for my sin on the cross, for your sin. And there's life in Christ. That passage has Jesus of Nazareth all over it. And these are just a few of the prophecies that pointed to Jesus. I, I'm not going to read them all. I could, but I don't think y'all would stay. There are over 60 major prophecies that talk about and point to the Messiah. And then there are over 300 that allude to Jesus and the, him being the Messiah. And I've shared this with you before, but it's one of my favorite uh, statistics to help you understand just the odds of one man fulfilling these prophecies about who the Messiah is. A man named Peter Stoner set out many years ago to discover the odds in all of, of one man in all of history fulfilling only eight, only eight of the 60 prophecies. You hear that? He figured out the probability of one man in all of history fulfilling eight of the major, 60 major prophecies. He did the mathematics. He, he knows more than me. I have to take off my socks and shoes if I want to count real high. But he did it. And here's what he said. The probability that Jesus of Nazareth could have fulfilled even eight such prophecies would be one in ten to the 17th power. Okay? That is, just to help you understand, I don't even know how to say that number, but that's one with 17 zeros behind it. That's a lot of shoes off. How many of y'all want to pay the taxes on that? I'd do it. <laughs> you know? I'll walk away. But that, I'm saying it. That is the odds of Jesus, of one man fulfilling eight of the 60. And it, from when we look at the scripture, we see that Jesus not only fulfilled the eight, he fulfilled the 60, he fulfilled the 300. He fulfilled all these prophecies. You can look and you can see Jesus running in and out of the pages of scripture. And ultimately when he arrives on the scene and ultimately when he rose from the grave, there's no doubt that Jesus is the anointed one of God, the Messiah, the Christ. That's right. He settled it once and for all. He fulfilled every single one of the prophecies, and it's stunning to think about the probability and the mathematics behind that. But yet people still miss the Messiah. Most of the people walking around, watching Jesus heal, watching Jesus touch the unclean leper, watching Jesus heal people just from walking by and they touch the hem of his garment. He didn't even stop and say, oh, be healed. He didn't even touch him. She, was, she touched the hem of his garment. They saw this, and yet they still rejected him, the great majority of people. And it's crazy to think that he fulfilled all these prophecies, and it looks so clear to us. How could they miss it? If one man, if one man fulfilled all those prophecies and rose from the dead, what do you think that means? I think he's the Messiah. And I also believe that it means that we should listen to what he says. Let's not be like them and miss the point of who Jesus is. Now, hold up, because you came out here and you're sitting in the, in the heat and the sun. You think, man, I am, I'm in, I'm all in. But you know what? I find in my life that so many times, yes, I believe that Jesus is the Messiah, but I don't understand what it means for him to be the Messiah. Because if Jesus fulfilled all those prophecies and he arrived on the scene when he did and he performed the miracles that he did and he culminated 
culminated that ministry with the greatest miracle of all, not just raising a man from the dead who would die again, but raising himself from the grave to never die again and giving you and I the opportunity to live for eternity. That deserves our full allegiance and our full worship, our lives being surrendered to him. And I believe we miss who the Messiah really and truly is when we don't surrender everything to him. Jesus did not come to fulfill the prophecies, be the Messiah, the Christ, to come and live his life and lay his life down on the cross for your sin and mine for half-hearted devotion. That's not why he came and died. He came so that you and I can die, so that we can truly live. This mess that we think we're doing right now, we think we're surviving and thriving maybe even, this is not life. Life is only in Jesus Christ. When you surrender everything, the beautiful thing is, is that God allows you joy in this world. God allows you to live a good life in many ways, but he also promises that there will be persecutions and there will be trials, but those come so that you can have faith to the end and survive and live and thrive for all eternity. Because we're not living just for the 70 years that we're here on this ball of dirt. We're living for all eternity. So I think if he fulfills those prophecies, if he heals those people, and he raises himself out of that grave, then we need to listen to what he says. We don't need to simply just say Jesus is Lord. We don't need to just go about our life like normal. We need to live a life that's changed, that's different. We need to be completely surrendered to him. And here's one of the things I want to, to sort of wrap things up with. All these prophecies, all these things, we see the ministry, we see the resurrection. But what's one of the things that Jesus taught over and over and over again? When he ascended up into heaven, what did he finally say? I will what? I'll come back. Just like you saw. And what does that mean? If Jesus fulfilled all those prophecies and we are, are living our lives right now, he is coming back. What does that mean for us? Do we live our lives like Jesus is coming back? Do we live our lives completely surrendered to him like he can come back at any moment because there is no holding him back because he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords and he can return today, right now. And so if we truly understand who the Messiah is and we see that he fulfilled all these things before, that means he keeps his promises. And he said he's coming back. So let's be ready. If he came as he promised the first time, isn't it safe to assume he's going to come back just like he promised the second time? Yep. So the question I want to sort of leave you with is this. Are you ready? Are you ready for his return? Not just ready because you're tired, but is your heart and soul ready? Are you surrendered to him? Because his grace is perfect and all it takes is us laying ourselves down at his feet and he takes care of the rest. You don't have to get it perfect. Yes, he wants you to grow. Yes, he wants you to mature because that helps other people see Jesus in you. But what you have to do is just quit fighting and quit working and quit trying to earn his love and just lay it all down and say, God, no longer me but you. Surrender your life to him. Are your neighbors ready? Are the people under your roof ready? At a point in Jesus' ministry, he was gathered with his disciples there on Caesarea Philippi. And he asked them, he said, who do the people say that I am? And they said, some say Elijah, some say uh, John the Baptist. They you know, said all kinds of different things. And then Jesus asked a question. He said, who do you say I am? 
Peter being Peter, you know one thing, that brain did not engage many times when he opened his mouth, but just one time, man, he hit a home run. He absolutely hit a home run. He said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are the Christ. You are the one that we have been waiting for. You are the one that makes our hearts whole. You are the one who gives life even in death. You are the one who changes everything. You are the Christ. And so I ask you today to make sure how will you answer that question? When Jesus says, who do you say I am? Does your life, does your lips, does your actions, does your thoughts say you are the Christ? Because he came as he promised the first time. Coming as he promised. It's not just about you and me, though. It's about many other people who need to know Jesus. And if we look at this world right now, we're reminded more than ever that hearts and lives are broken. And people are out there searching for answers. And I'm here to say, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that the only answer for all of our problems is the love of Jesus Christ. Loving other people like he first loved us. Loving Jesus is the only thing that will cure your heart, the only thing that will fix your problems, the only thing that will take away your burdens, the only thing that will give you a life that truly matters. So if Jesus is not Lord and Christ of your life, if he's not the anointed one over you, today we can change that. And just like Jesus began his ministry, he was baptized. You and I can be baptized and begin a ministry serving him, surrender ourselves to him, have our sins washed away to heaven. The Holy Spirit. God will live in you. And He'll make you an agent for His love to change this world. So if there's something on your heart, I pray that you realize 